Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art produced in South River, Ontario, Canada by New Adventures in Sound Art. On today's show, we feature interviews with two artists exhibiting installations at the NASA North Media Arts Centre here in South River. In the second half, I will interview Teresa Connors about her approach to gathering data from the east coast of Newfoundland and using it to transform images and sounds in a series of audiovisual non-linear works. One of those is called From the Edge, which will open on September 24th at NASA. But first, uh, we're going to listen to an interview that David Arthur did with artist and composer Bentley Jarvis. Jarvis's sound sculpture Constant Planks has been on exhibit outdoors at NASA since July 30th. It features two tall cedar sculptures that have loudspeakers built into them, and they also listen to the sounds of passing traffic and answer back with electronic music organized according to the mathematical concept of Planck's constant. In case you're wondering, Planck's constant relates the energy in one quantum of electromagnetic radiation to the frequency of that radiation. Here is David Arthur with Bentley Jarvis. It is really my honor to, to interview you or to ask you some questions, uh, Bentley Jarvis, because, um, uh, well, I can see uh, you've been involved with electroacoustic music for a long time, since the 70s, and uh, you're also, you've been involved with sonic arts, hybrid media, and, and time-based media, and computer animation at, at OCAD since the year of my birth, 1983, so quite some time ago. So. Uh, Bentley, how would you describe sound art? Well, sound, sound art is art that, that treats sound as a artistic material in the same way we'd uh, say use paint or wood or stone or something like that. And uh, quite often you, you're dealing with the same sorts of things that visual artists deal with, things like texture and contrast and structure and things like that, as opposed to things like melody and harmony and you know what you think of um, being associated with conventional music. So it's it's a you know I suppose you could you could say that in visual art uh, something happened when there was a move from representational to non-representational art and this this is a kind of a parallel thing that happened with with sound where where composers have decided that they're not necessarily going to use melodies and tunes and things like that they're going they're jumping up a stage of abstraction into into texture and form and things like that. Okay, well, we get asked that question a lot here at NASA, so I thought I would ask you. And uh, <laughs> our, our answers are, they overlap a bit. Um, that's great. So, um, first of all, I'm very curious about constant planks. Um, let's just start out with, well, what, what's in the name? What's in the name of constant planks itself? Okay, well, uh, Darren contacted me uh, a while back and said that uh, NASA is now at a space where there are huge logging trucks that go past now and then. And the rest of the time, it's pretty quiet. But when these trucks go past, it's sort of a, a moment. 
And he wondered if I could make a piece that would respond to that. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, that sounds really interesting. So um, in the past, I've made um, sound sculpture that was intended to go in galleries. And so it didn't have to do with weather. So that was one thing I had to concern myself with. Another was uh, I've done a lot of work with uh, making sound pieces that use the resonant pop properties of pipes, pipes, plastic pipes, whatever, large structures that, that have uh, sort of extreme resonant properties. And what I'll do is build the structure and then I'll play electronic sound through it. And this time I, I really thought this might be a chance to do something with wood. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, I'm living at a, a cottage um, most of the time now and this is something i built and it's on the site of an old sawmill so um i see the old structure of the, the the sawmill closed in the 50s so there's really nothing left except some concrete in the bush but I, i'm actually doing a piece about the ruins of, of the sawmill and i'm aware of wood <laughs> a lot uh, i've done a lot of building up here building cottages building decks building docks things like that and so wood is on my mind, you know, and, and so I thought I'd like to make a piece that, that, that is made of wood and explores uh, the resonant properties of wood because it's a lot different than metal. I mean, it, it's got a softness, especially the wood I used, it's, it's red, western red cedar. So it tends to absorb a lot of the higher frequencies and, and resonate in lower frequencies. Um, and the title uh, is actually, it's a bit of a joke. Uh, I've done a lot of building up here with my father-in-law, John Davies, who's a scientist. And uh, we'd, we'd get to a point where we had assembled a lot of wood and I would usually say, these, these, cons these planks are constant. And planks constant is something he would use in his work and he always kind of grimaced. But uh, this was my little joke. So the piece is called Constant Planks. And I used the, uh, I used planks constant in the uh, making the piece. This is uh, a number, it's a special number that physicists use, and um, it's uh, 6.626 uh, times 10 to the negative 34th. <laughs> and so oh. something to do with energy. I don't really understand it, but uh, I, I decided that um, I would use that number, the six point, uh, the sixth part of it anyway, as the basic frequency in this piece. So for quite a while, I've been really interested in exploring upper harmonics of low frequency sine waves uh, or at least of, of low frequencies so this all the sounds in this piece are based on the upper harmonics of this very low number wow it's there's <laughs> quite a lot in there <laughs> you know part of my part of my duties here at nasa i, I uh, in the mornings i'm, I'm usually i'm often setting up constant planks and placing the mic and booting up the computer and such <laughs> Um, so, uh, and then, you know, we have people coming into the cafe area for coffee and, and sometimes I take them out for a, a tour, but what I like to do Bentley is I like to give them quite some time to kind of puzzle over it and try and, um, work out where the, the sound is coming from and, and well, what are we listening to actually when we're listening to the sounds created by constant when I started on that project, I uh, asked Aaron if he could send me a recording of these these big trucks going past. So I had that to start with. And uh, I decided what I would do is extract information from the, the truck sound. So um, I'm using a program called Max, which is uh, a lot of artists use this. Uh, it, I've set up uh, a patch, it's called a Max patch. 
where um, I'm taking the sound of the trucks and I'm breaking into 12 spectral bands. So I'm, I'm, I'm extracting information. And each of these bands is controlling uh, a synthesizer that is also built in the software. And each of these synthesizers is playing at a particular tempo. The tempo is determined by whether or not a truck has gone past. If the truck goes past, the whole thing waits about oh, 10 seconds and then it responds. And the, the response is based on what the truck sounded like. And the, uh, each of these synthesizers in the spectral band uh, decides whether or not it will play a, a note or not. And if it does, it's one of those notes that's based on Planck's constant. And um, there's a, a chance that playing a note is determined by whether or not there was activity in its particular spectral band. So each truck has its own sort of sound. And so the response is based on what the truck sounded like. <laughs> All right. Um, how would you describe the relationship between the sound and the shape of constant time? Ah, okay. Uh, the shape has a lot to do with the timbre of the piece. In other words, the, the, the sculptural uh, pieces are acting in a way like the resonators in a musical instrument. So if you think of something like a, a cello or a violin, the shape of the body and the, the, and the structure of the wood and all that determines the sound. And in this case, um, it's an unusual sort of thing because in a way what I've done is build a, a very, very bad loudspeaker because loudspeakers are usually designed to be neutral and not color the sound. And I designed this intentionally to color the sound dramatically. So it's a hollow box. Uh, it's a little bit like a snake biting its own tail because there's a loudspeaker inside. The sound goes down around and, and catches up with itself. And so there's phase cancellation. Um, all kinds of things happen with sound and you get uh, heavy comb filtering, things like that. So uh, I, I was, really pleased when I first, you know, that when you make something like this, you have no idea, really. Well, you, ha you, you sort of have a rough idea what it's going to sound like. But when you actually start pumping sound into it, it's, it's fascinating because you hear the, the quality of the structure. And I was really, really pleased with it because it's, it's bonkers. <laughs> yeah, really terrible response, which is, which is really interesting to use. So then yeah. I, I, I shaped all my sounds to, to suit the structures. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's really interesting uh, that you could, should compare it to a, a, a snake uh, eating its own tail because, well, that's Ouroboros, but I, we've had people compare it to yeah. a harp. There was a woman who thought it was oh, yeah. like a harp. And of course, uh, a, a doorway or a door frame into a, a you know, a different uh, sort of dimension. But, um, uh, okay, so is this the first time you've ex exhibited something in the near north or uh, north of Toronto GTA anyway? Well, I guess it is. Uh, usually it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, usually it's down south. I live in London, Ontario, and, and I've done things there, and done things at, you know, sound symposium out east and things like that. But yeah, you're right. Uh, and uh, I, re I really love the setting. Uh, I was really glad to, to put this thing out there. And I like the idea that uh, tying in with the site uh, I'm really interested in site-specific art right now. And so for me, it, it links this site where I am, the old sawmill, and that site there where the logging truck, trucks go past. So, yeah, it's a special thing. Bentley, do you think there is any sound that is objectively terrible, or do you think that sounds all have some sort of potentiality? 
I think it's really context dependent. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's kind of like when you're gardening. Some things are weeds if they're in the wrong place, but if you, if they're in the right place, they're they're appropriate. I had a, a my wife uh, moved into this at Richmond Hill, and the property she was on used to be an asparagus farm. So every spring, tons of asparagus would come up in her lawn. And to most people, that would be a good thing, but she didn't like asparagus, so it was a weed, you know. So <laughs> one man's asparagus is another man's a weed. And this insane quotes of sound. Right. I agree with you. And it, yeah, it depends on your mood as well. Um, so uh, course, yeah. what you, what's your relationship to Northern Ontario? I, uh, is it um, you have a relationship with Red Lake? Were you, were you born there? Did you grow up no, there? I was, I was born there. And, I was born there in '49 and lived there until I was 18. And it had a huge influence on me. I, I loved it up there. Although, you know, as you as you get older, as you become a teenager, you start to really long to get, <laughs> to get somewhere. When, when I moved out of town, the population was something like 700. I was in a little town called Bombertown, so it was very very small. It's in a gold mining area, but uh, I, I've always loved the north, and I've spent as much as possible my summers up here because uh, my wife's the same. She we both love the north. So. What do you remember the area of Red Lake sounding like, and was there any traffic there? <laughs> I used to have this, these great experiences where I'd, I'd go skiing uh, by myself when it was very, very cold. And I can remember standing on the top of a high hill and uh, across the lake, there was this little town called Mackenzie Island, and I could hear people talking in the streets, and it'd be you know, two or three miles away. Uh, right. But it, it was air was so crisp and cold, you could hear anything anywhere. Absolutely dead silent. Yeah, it's fascinating. The sound here is wonderful too. I, I mean, I, when we used we did live in Toronto for a while, and we'd drive up here and, and ride usually in the middle of the night, and get out of the car and go, "Oh, <laughs> that's nice." Like nothing. <laughs> so, how do you compare that with uh, with now? You're in in London, is that right? Usually. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I teach in Toronto, which is kind of strange. I commute to Toronto to teach, and I find, um, yeah, incredible contrast. And and I really don't. Uh, I, I I find the traffic noise, all that kind of thing, bothers me incredibly. So as as soon as I can get away from it, I do. And uh, yeah, I know other people love the sound of the city. So I think it depends on what you're used to. Bentley, I've I've spent some time with uh, Constant Planks, and so I've I have some. Uh, sort of some things I'm, I'm wondering about. I was wondering if you've, um, you know, I'm interested in augmented reality, but augmented reality is usually a, a kind of a visual thing. We automatically think of it as a visual thing with screens or glasses. And I was just wondering, I mean, in a sense, what you've done with Constant Planks is, is augmentation as well. And um, have you ever thought of that as being part of the future? <laughs> I have friends who are working in that area, especially at, at, at OCAD where I teach, and uh, I think, yes, um, that's a really interesting uh, observation of yours, though I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I, I, I think it, it definitely is. Yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. Okay. Uh, I, I do think augmented reality is, is one of the ways things are going. Yeah. I, I, I'm, personally, I'm, I'm torn about screen art. I mean, I'm working on screen art right now. I'm doing computer animation. I'm making pieces, but um, I also find that I, I get really tired of screens, and that's why one of the reasons I really like sculpture and something in the outdoors, especially like that, is is 
to me, kind of refreshing. Um, so yeah, I mean, augmented reality, you, t you tend to have to, you know, hold up your phone or wear goggles or you know, something like that. And, and I find that kind of a barrier to, to the experience. Now, how about, I mean, this has been a, a crazy year for everybody, but uh, I was just wondering what, what your experience has been of uh, the, the quieting of both urban and rural areas um, during quarantine um, this year. Well, you know, I, I didn't notice it all that much in that <laughs> I'm an old guy, so I, my wife and I have both been staying in a lot, although we would sort of sneak out in the evening and walk, but... Uh, so I wasn't downtown. I hadn't been going to stores for months, uh, that sort of thing. But it, strange enough, COVID had a, a bearing on this piece and that I realized I have to use materials I, 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 that I'm familiar with. And I can't go and look at, like, when I was working on pieces with metal pipes and resonators, I'd go to the hardware store, you know, the home, uh, uh, the building supply shops and you know, I, re I re realized afterwards that I must have looked a little peculiar because I was holding pipes up to my ears to see what they sound like, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm not, not usually, you know, it's buying my art supplies, you know, but but uh, I couldn't do that with the wood. So I happened to know that you could get planks of this type of wood that these particular dimensions and I could order it and it would be delivered and I wouldn't have to, you know, go into the place and look at it. So, uh, and, and everything I used, I had to sort of, uh, I couldn't go into the store and buy the screws. So I had to, yeah, everything... Uh, this piece is made entirely with the kind of things you'd make a deck. It's all deck building materials. It's deck screws. It's this wood. It's you know. It's uh, it's all screwed together. It's made the same way you'd make a, something at a cottage, which is what what it is. Okay. So, Benley, um, I'm interested uh, if if you have been influenced by others. Um, I heard mention in in one of something written about you online about. Um, Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Uh, I had never heard of him before, so I did some some research and uh, enjoyed watching some of his stuff on YouTube. Um, are there any others uh, who have influenced you? Oh yeah. Um, for some reason, uh, Stockhausen uh, been a huge influence, and and especially his earlier works, and 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 also his writings, uh, his series, his ideas are are fascinating. Uh, also, Yanis Zanakis. Uh, been a big, big influence. Uh, he did a lot of, uh, particularly because he uh, combines a visual component and the audio component. And that's something I always I usually try and do. I usually try and put together image and sound. And he came from a background uh, of, well, he studied as an architect, but he also studied composition with Messiaen. So uh, all his work had this strong visual uh, link. Um, were all Ligeti, all, all kinds, a lot of those early guys had a big influence on me. I think because they were highly experimental, they were trying new things, even people like uh, Pierre Boulez and, uh, uh, oh, you name it, all, the early guys, uh, I think their work is still very, very interesting. And, um, yeah, but I would say Stockhausen and Zanakis would be the big ones for me. All right, uh, let's see. So, uh, just some simpler questions. What what are you busy with these days, Bentley? Um, well, uh, I, I'm at uh, Terry College of Art, and all of our courses are going online. So right now, as a matter of fact, I spent all morning editing <laughs> editing uh, tutorials I'm putting together. So I'm, all my courses are becoming 
mainly compilations of tutorials. Uh, fortunately, I've done this before. I teach an electroacoustics course every summer online. So I nice thing about that is I've taught it from Italy and England and here up at the cottage. You know, it's, it's totally asynchronous. In other words, uh, anyone can be anywhere doing, doing it at any, any time. So that's why I'm modeling my other courses mainly. Uh, so that's that's a big big project. I'm also uh, doing uh, computer animation that is um, very hard to describe, but it's uh, it's abstract. It's based on one of the things I'm investigating is what happens with light when you break the rules in the in the animation software. So you can make, for instance, objects that are transparent, but as light passes through them, uh, it doesn't behave in the way it doesn't follow the laws of physics. And I'm getting some very interesting results with that. And then once that's all done, I put uh, electroacoustic music to it. So that's a big area. Um, I have a big piece of sound sculpture uh, that I'm working on that has 64 loudspeakers built into it and uh, 256 resonators. And I'm just working on the music for that right now. But it's, it's, it's a big piece that's taking a long time. Um, it sounds amazing. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of things I'm working on, but um, a lot of them are a long way from completion, but I, I don't care. I've done Well, I'm, I'm intrigued, and I want to hear and experience more. So uh, where can people go if they would like to uh, follow you or to, to, see, to catch some of these um, happenings when, when they occur? Um, <laughs> well, apart from the piece that uh, you're talking about, uh, the NASA piece, I don't have anything uh, coming for a while. Uh, I, I will be putting things uh, online once they're done, so I imagine about six months to a year I should be putting some things up. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll put together a website and stick things on that. I don't have a website at the moment, but I'll, I'll do that. I'm not sure. Well, we look forward to it, Bentley. Uh, it, it's really been a pleasure talking to you finally. Yeah, you too. That was artist Bentley Jarvis in conversation with David Arthur about Jarvis's sound sculpture, Constant Planks, which has been running uh, outdoors at NASA since July 30th and uh, will be closing soon on September 21st. But opening shortly after that on the 24th is a new exhibit uh, with a work by creative coder Teresa Connors. In her work From the Edge, she developed a creative coding system to live stream data off the Smart Atlantic St. John's Buoy, which is about a kilometer offshore of Cape Spear, Newfoundland. The data is used to shift parameters for arranging musical improvisations performed by Connors, as well as video captured off the coast by Shannon Lynn Harris. In my conversation with Connors, uh, we situate this work in relation to her other creative coding works, and uh, some of which draw from this smart Atlantic boy.
Your piece, uh, From the Edge, uh, is a vi uh, video installation that's taking data from the east coast of Newfoundland and uh, why that location and how, how that came to be and, and how it informs and determines the shape of this piece. It's not just a video installation, I consider it an audio-visual installation and I always tag in the term non-linear. Um, the project came about, we, basically, I was invited to do two-year postdoc position um, at Memorial University with the International Institute of Critical Studies in Improvisation with Ellen Waterman. And um, for quite a number of years, my work uh, evolves out of field reporting practices, basically going out about in the world, collecting audio-visual material. So it's... These works are very situated in the time and the place in which I'm recording. And because I was in Newfoundland for two years, I decided to situate the practice or the works that I made during my postdoc in that place. Now, I have to say that I am originally from Newfoundland, so I, I have a link to the landscape of that place. And when I knew that I had this position, um, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, well, I'm definitely going to have to explore the wind and I'm going to have to explore the ocean because they're very powerful forces in that environment. And that was kind of, that was the beginning conversation within the practices that these are the forces, this is where I am, I'm situated here, so let's work with that. And um, also to expand on your question, uh, about five or six years ago, I started to become more interested in finding different materials that could fold into the practice. So um, beyond just the audio and video that's collected within the different environments, I started to become interested in finding ways to stream data from the environments. So specific to From the Edge, I started a collaboration with the Marine Institute of Newfoundland to use their data, to stream their data off what they call the Smart Atlantic Boys. So all around Newfoundland, I think, I don't even know how many, there's probably 12 or 13 Smart Bay Boys that you can tap into and just stream the data that's coming off the boy, whether it's the ocean temperature, uh, ocean current, it also gives information about the wind, all, just whatever environmental data that's happening from in the environment at that time. So that's that that folded into being in Newfoundland. This is the situation I'm in, and also this is the collaboration, like the collaboration process that folded into it. All that information that comes off these buoys is things that we maybe don't are not able to perceive if you were there at the location. Um, or wouldn't know the differentiation or the the range they know that you know this particular day is offer you know offering or you know compared to what it might 
offer in a year or a decade or whatever. So what's your basis of, of uh, you call it filtering or narrowing or selecting from this data? What, what, what's the criteria? Uh, specific to this project, it was mostly um, things that streamed more readily, like some of the, it's easier to get the data about the, the ocean temperature or the ocean current than some of the other parameters that are around the buoy, which sometimes don't change for days. So, you know, I was, uh, I approached this practice from a very practical position. Like if I'm making these creative coding systems, um, I, 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 I like to make sure that the installation, number one, works. <laughs> it's a robust system. And also that there's changes coming about with, within the data that I'm streaming. So that was just like simple, pragmatic um, parameters. But, you know, th this practice really comes from just this, this simple question that has been in my practice for a very long time. Um, you know, I've been doing field recording projects for close to 30 years now. And, and the same question continues to surface no matter what project I'm on is simple. It's like, what is here? What is in this environment? Like for many years, it was, you know, gathering the audiovisual material. But, you know, there's information in these environments that, that, that go beyond just what we can hear, that go beyond just what we can see. And I, was, I also went down this road of data streaming or trying to find ways to incorporate data and, specifically because I wanted to, I became really curious about exploring nonlinear processes. I was, wanted to find ways that the, the environment had a way to do something in the installation. So it wasn't just all about like human-centric creativity or human-centric creativity, but there's something that the environment does, you know, it's in the system. I don't have control over what the ocean's doing. So um, I find that quite interesting to fold that um, element into the process. Yeah, I think that takes it a bit out of the, um, we call it human-centric, but I guess the the uh, the uh, extraction of the environment, uh, but uh, which I guess you are extracting images and sounds from it, but, but it's also uh, those images and sounds can be moved by elements that are happening in real time at that location. For sure. They're yeah. not pre predetermined. But they're not predetermined. And, you know, I, when I was doing my research, when I first started this process, you know, I stumbled on the word performativity to my chagrin, well, not chagrin, but, you know, um, I had to do a lot of reading <laughs> when I found that word. But, you know, I, I feel that these things are, whether it's the wind or the ocean or whatever, um, they're, they're a performative improvisational agent within these systems. And I'm really interested in uh, exploring these processes. And what I have found over time, and the more I go into these systems of engagement is how I consider it, is that there's a different aesthetic at play and it's completely shifted my practice. Uh, um, there's different uh, artistic engagement that, or different artistic questions that come into play that 
weren't permitted to play previous to within the fixed media processes I was engaged in previously. You have a long background in musical improvisation, and and then you talked about this being like an improvisation and how how the uh, environment influences the performance of your source material. Um, but the, I guess the difference in between this and other improvisation is that this uh, ocean data is uh, not hearing what you're doing. It's not a complete feedback loop uh, or not a, you know, it's not a loop of, uh, you know, if I was improvising with you, I could hear what you're doing and, <laughs> and it would change my behavior and For my sure. behavior would change yours and so on. Um, so, uh, uh, what, how does that, as, since you're kind of influencing these other elements that respond to that, how, how are they, how are they uh, orchestrated differently than if they, if they were in a case where you were responding to a, to a person or thing that was responding to you? When I talk about these pieces, I, I don't often use the word improvisation because improvisation is so embedded in human-centric as a human-centric process. When I usually talk about this, this work, I, I consider it as, I, I, I use the terminology, non, non-linear processes. And so the non-linear processes is the ocean doing its thing within the system and the different influences. And also too, I, I will say that when my collaborators and I are out and about gathering some of the sound and video from these environments, there's no pre-scripted narrative that's going on. We're just heading out to the world, making sure all the batteries are charged. <laughs> and from there, whatever's there is captured. So we, you could use the word improvisation in that um, back and forth with the environment, but yeah, I I often don't put that word improvisation within how I describe this, just because of the question that you asked me. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It, it is a different. I, I guess it is really a different paradigm, uh, really. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not sure if nonlinear uh, works for me so much either, because. Uh, I think it's a uh, responsive system. Maybe might be okay, because it's responding to this uh, other pl- place, um, mm-hmm. and uh, as opposed to uh, uh, like nonlinear, could still be not not be have an element of narrative, but could be musical, or you know, could be you know could have other ways of organizing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be an exquisite corpse or whatever, you know, it could be uh, many ways of structuring mm-hmm. uh, procedures, but uh, this is sort of uh, kind of a res- uh, responding to uh, some some kind of live phenomena. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think, hmm. I think about that one. Well, responsive system to me, when you say it, my like from my guts, I go back to oh, that's more human centric narrative because uh-huh. it's the human responding to. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I don't, but that's don't what, but your piece is the human responding to it, I think. But well, but not always, it's not uh-huh. everything. I, I don't think the piece system is just the human. Yes, the human is part of it, obviously. I'm out there with the recorder, I'm doing the code, and blah blah. 
but within the system is this element that um, I'm not responding to the boy. I'm not causing the ocean to flow or be its temperature. So it's just thinking about the system as this system of different agents, different agencies going on. So in the end, let's uh, fast forward <laughs> to the end result of the piece. So, so when one walks into the gallery, what does one experience? What, what is the end result of all this? For, for this specific piece from the edge, you, you have this, uh, I consider this like this poetic audiovisual um, installation. You have sonic elements coming. You have um, particle system that is being generated live, <clears throat> excuse me, based on the data streaming from the boy. So those things are consistently changing. And also there's elements of um, some of the video that was captured in the environment that is randomly triggered. So it's constantly changing. There's no fixed uh, set as to what will happen. It's just will continuously play and morph depending on what the data is streaming at the time. And how is it different than a screensaver then? <laughs> uh, well, for this particular work, you might think that it does just look like a screensaver. The particle system does have a certain way it morphs. And, you know, there are elements of screensavers that do um, do that kind of motion. But I think in the end, there's the elements that are from the environment that um, just places it more in the poetic conversation that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm discovering this with my own pieces lately that I've been so focused on sticking to just what the soundscape does that, uh, you know, and I go, then I start to go, well, how am I different than, you know, than just being like a nature album, you know? You know, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. So it's like there's there's sometimes you hit these uh, other boundaries that you don't anticipate mm -hmm. um, that have a place in popular culture, you could say, um, but are still, but those things are still determined by different rules or uh, <laughs> interests, you know. Uh, but the, on a certain surface, there's similarities, and uh, I don't know if you've encountered those kind of boundaries before. Well, I, I would say that with this piece from the edge, that was a boundary that I did. And I actually thought exactly in my mind, I was like, this is starting to look like a screensaver. <laughs> so when, when you asked me the question, that's why I'm laughing. Because I was like, yeah, I, I started to think that. <laughs> you know, and at, at the end of the day, I, I'm just trying to build these systems as best as I can based on, you know, my own creative curiosities. And as a creative coder, I'm always learning new things. So the next time I do something, I will have learned from have made this piece. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I'll try something else besides the particle system. So, but so by thinking of yourself as a coder, I mean, I I think of yourself as you as a musician and video artist. But but you you say you define yourself as a coder. Uh, I was wondering how you how you uh, differentiate that. Well, I started to use that terminology probably four or five years ago because I ended up in, <clears throat> excuse me, with all my collaborations, I was ending up doing all the creative coding. Um, so I, I have a, 
a group of collaborators that I've worked with for close to 25 years, um, mostly uh, pretty high-end filmmakers. You know, they, they're quite good at capturing the, the visuals. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, when I was building these non-linear audiovisual installations, I was doing all the coding. So after a while, instead of like on your CV or your bio, having this long list of what you do, I just opted for creative coder. You know, it's just made it easier because in creative code, you can do all kinds of different things. You know, you can do the sonics, you can do the visuals, you can do the generative things. And I think also, you know, I think this comes just from my teacher side. There's within society, there's still a, a fear and a hesitance about creative coding. So I, I think there's a part of me that just wants to move that conversation forward. You know, people are afraid of creative coding. I'm like, listen, it's just like painting. There's no difference. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and it's painting, so with, I, painting with numbers. Doing it that way kind of op opens it up to go to any discipline, whether it's music or sure. visual arts or film. or. Mm -hmm. And I think that as these different art forms start to become more staged in in the electronic world that that the integration will become i think m more and more uh, natural and germane mm -hmm. that I agree. that um that you will have peop that people will be more like you and that way mm -hmm. uh, i'll put on my musical hat and work on it this way and then the, mm -hmm. next week i'll switch Try to something other, else. yeah switch to my other hat and then bring these elements together you know i i i'll just say this as kind of response to what you're saying i i owe a lot to to my curiosity to my formative years that i spent at nova scotia college of art and design long before i went into music or trained as an opera singer or did that whole classical music thing i actually started training as a fine artist and i was like 16 17. so you know, what I, you know, it was so important to my younger self, like the formative years were so embedded in just so many different practices. And all these years later, that that's triggered again. And it's because of creative, creative coding. I don't worry about the whole, oh, whether I'm doing electroacoustic or sonic scape or la, 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 la. It just doesn't come into the narrative anymore. I'm just in practice or process. So yeah. I've even, like, I, I start taking out the word electroacoustic composer. I don't normally use that anymore. It's like, you know, sometimes it happens, but uh, it just doesn't matter to me anymore, those titles. And, and within the world of coding, is there other sub-definitions that you have to fend off uh, uh, the same way that there would be within music or, or visual art? Not that I've come across yet. I haven't come so across if you use this yet. or that language, you're not. It doesn't define you in any way. No. Mm -hmm. Do you mean like the platform that you code in? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't come up across that yet. And quite honestly, there's there's so many different things happening in that world that it's changing all the time. And I actually think it's a really exciting 
I think it's a very exciting time for the creative coding world. People are just trying all kinds of new things. And I, I have to sit back going, wow, that's, that's really amazing. So um, I'm looking forward to diving in deeper. From the Edge is part of another series of pieces that also uses the data from Newfoundland from those from those uh, smart buoys. Uh, what are those pieces and how are they different than this one? Yeah, um, so during my two-year postdoc situation, um, I created three audiovisual installations. One was called Currents, one was called Patterns, and the third one is from, from the edge. And the first one, Currents, um, I, I did stream the data off Boy, but more importantly for me is that I incorporated uh, an interactive heart rate system so that when people came into the gallery, they would just put their finger on a heart rate monitor and that would trigger elements of the audiovisual installation. So again, it's like expanding this um, mode of engagement. What are all these different elements that are feeding into the process that's happening? So that was one uh, particular project. And that was uh, premiered during Sound Symposium 2018, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the second piece, Patterns. Uh, again, I, I had quite a lot of audiovisual material and I made what I call a, a video fabric. It's a, a wall of videos that uh, were triggered and, 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 and were morphed by particular knitting patterns from Newfoundland. Newfoundlanders are longtime knitters. They have their own mitt pattern, mitt, mitt and half patterns. So I folded into the, the system uh, these knitting patterns, which then changed how the videos were projected, which so, I thought was kind of cool. So using that pattern to determine how the videos were edited, I guess, mm -hmm. and sequenced in that. No. How actually how they were placed? I think I had a grid of a hundred by a hundred, so there was a hundred small video screens, and then the videos changed speeds. So depending on where that video was placed, based on the knitting pattern, you could see the knitting pattern made from the videos. The videos were of the ocean, so it became this like morphing video fabric of. And that had sound as well? There was a huge folder of different material, sonic material from the landscape, but also a layer of improvisation. And this is one thing that has remained, I'm using the word improvisation, but when these systems are built at some point, I like to invite uh, an acoustic musician into the process so that while the material or the system is running, we're, I'm going to record um, live improvisations from the acoustic instrument. And that then is folded back into the pot of material that is triggered. I think actually from that, from the patterns installation, it, it um, <clears throat> excuse me, it premiered at the Eastern Edge in St. John's, Newfoundland. And at the time, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the artist's name. There was an artist working there. She had all these massively beautiful whale bones and so she kindly let me um, put it, put contact mics on the whale bones. So I, um, within that system, there's a whole folder of these sounds of recording the whale bones being tapped 
using the contact mics. So the performer then, she provided source material as opposed to performing with the installation. That is, I mean, it's happened both ways. There's times where, depending on where the installation is running, it can happen live, like uh, uh, Currents. I did have a, a live improvisation with Paul Benza, beautiful clarinetist who's recently passed away. He uh, came in one day and improvised live. Ellen Waterman, also a fantastic improviser on flute and voice. She's improvised with these systems. So, you know, the, the systems are set up so it can... Sometimes it can be live or sometimes it'll just run on its own. I like the idea of the, of the creative work having different lives. Like it can be this or something else. So it's not just stuck in one format. Now, I remember before you were doing this work in Newfoundland, you came to Toronto with a couple of pieces that had improvisation, one with Anne Bourne. Uh, <laughs> and then you also had an installation. And uh, But I guess those pieces... Uh, the titles of them slipped my mind, but they come before the Newfoundland work. And and but mm-hmm. how do they how do they influence or uh, the because I, I think that the, sounds like the direction you take you took with the Newfoundland work is might be related to those in some fashion. You're you're absolutely right, Darren. Good question. So those two pieces, the first one with Anne Bourne was Aspects of Trees. That was a project with my longtime collaborator, New Zealand filmmaker, Andrew Denton. Again, it was based on our field recording work. We uh, collected audiovisual material from the pine beetle epidemic that happened on the West Coast in the woods. So we gathered quite a bit of material and Aspects of Trees was right at the, was a turning point. And to me, it was a, a turning point piece for me because I was, I had become more curious of trying to find ways to build these systems that weren't fixed. I was getting, you know, tired of doing the fixed media work and Aspects of Trees was the turning point. I built this improvisation system for acoustic instrument within the, the Max Patch. However, the visuals of that were fixed in place. So that, you know, it, it it triggered in me this this desire to have the visuals also not fixed. And so directly into the second piece that you mentioned that was premiered at Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium, that was, the piece was called Cathedral. Again, a collaboration with Andrew Denton, we had traveled through, I think it was a three or four week audiovisual gathering session from the, West Coast of the United States from uh, Salton Sea, which, in this, which is in the southern part of California, all the way up into um, Sequoia National Park and then all up into Edmonton. And Cathedral came from material that was captured in Sequoia National Park. And that was, that actually really influenced the aesthetic that followed and has. Um, informed all the audiovisual installations that I've created since then. Because in that piece, I finally unlocked the visuals. <laughs> they were not fixed. And also the visuals um, were mostly comprised of um, shots of sunlight through the sequoia trees. And so I coded the system so that the, the, the 
the beams of light from the video actually triggered the sound. So that was just another link into this other process of something else causing something to be triggered. Uh, you mentioned that uh, fixed media, I mean, in other words, like something like a f uh, film in a movie theater is fixed, uh, as an example. Um, but uh, so you were saying prior to that time you were doing work that was fixed media in that sense. So uh, was it a case of being introduced uh, like a, a different tool like Max and that provided uh, the ability to interact with other elements and make something that was not fixed that, that changed all the time uh, or changed according to rules or structures that you put in? Uh, or, is it a, or is there a different... Uh, impetus behind that that uh, change in direction i think that it there was it's both actually one one uh, one thing i did start learning how to code but before i started to do, do that i i was starting to become very curious about trying to get away from things being fixed in time i just didn't know how to and i will say this that you know i i am um, I resisted learning how to code for a very long time. I did not want to learn yet another thing. I was, you know, I was perf performing a lot as an opera singer at the time. I just like one more thing to learn. And there was a resistance in me. It's like, ah, oh, I just don't want to do it. But, you know, my friends were like, you know, just the way you think, what you talk about, about practice, you're going to have to learn to do this. <laughs> so I... I reluctantly dug my heels in it. Basically what I did is I, I hid out in a friend's house for a month. They went away on holidays and I took care of their cat. And I sat down with a, with a, a coding book and just started going through. It's like, okay, let's, let's do this. And, you know, I wasn't fully sold until I got to, I think it was around chapter 17. And there was this, I specifically remember it. It's like, oh, I can do that. And it was a, a chapter about how to make video trigger uh, sound. It was a simple thing like that. And it's a simple piece of code. But at the time, I was like, this is a life changer. <laughs> and from, from that, I was like, oh, okay, let's, let's, let's check this out. It took many, many, I, I consider it many years for, like, anytime you learn a new tool or a new way of doing practice, it's not going to. Like it takes time to develop. And so my first projects, I was just happy that it didn't crash. <laughs> but over time, uh, uh, I really feel that there's this other aesthetic that has developed. I'm quite happy being in this, what I consider a nonlinear practice. And some people say, oh, well, it's just, it doesn't matter what you put in the system. But from my perspective, it does matter what you put in the system. You know, you can't just throw anything in the system and hope it's going to work. And that's why I, you know, people ask me, what about the material? I, 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 I use the word that is very situated. It's situated in place. I'm, I'm not going to take material from somewhere else and put it in the system. So that's kind of like um, the, the ground, the grounding of the practice is like getting material from this environment what is what is here like what is in this environment and that's that's the beginning question the code and the material or your experience in that place they come together to make the piece mm -hmm. and 
Uh, And then when you start another piece or work on another piece, it's a different place and consequently different code resulting Mm -hmm. in a different piece. Different piece. Yep. Very different piece. So I I never, quite honestly, I never know what's going to happen. But with the Newfoundland pieces, is it like a three part piece or is it, or is it just, there's just so much stuff to work with that, that you could uh, make multiple pieces out of it? Well, there was, there was three different curio. Well, basically there was two curiosities that were, that motivated that for, but to preface that first off, I was in that environment. I was there for two years. And so that, that sticks with the, the foundation of my practice. It's like, I'm here. This is the environment. Let's check it out. Um, and I also wanted to explore some way to have some interactive element from the audience, which I you know, previously described with the work currents, where I had the heart rate system triggering elements of the, of the installation. So they were, they were different, um, I guess you could say agents, agencies that I was trying to fold into it. One, I wanted some kind of a piece where there was human interaction. And the other was that I wanted to really stream that data off the St. John's boy. <laughs> now that particular, it's, it's really interesting when we talk about this kind of stuff because it's really triggered in me. You know, my practice has been collaborative for a very long time. I consider myself a, a, a collaborator. All my work's a collaboration. But working with the Marine Institute in Newfoundland has really opened up this desire to have these larger scale collaborations. And while conversations could come out of those collaborations, they're, they're, they're definitely different conversations than if I, were, if I was working with my longtime collaborators, because half the time we don't even need to talk because we know each other so well. <laughs> but I, I'm really uh, determined to give practice-based research. You know, I'm using the terminology uh, in Canada, they call it research creation where I did my PhD in New Zealand, they call it practice-based research. I'm determined to get practice-based research, this creative inquiry into these other systems, into these other arenas. I think it's really important and this is the time to do it. So the conversation with the Marine Institute, that's gonna be a, that's gonna be a multi, multi-year conversation and it's still going on. <laughs> that was Teresa Connors in conversation with me, Darren Copeland, her installation From the Edge is on exhibit at the NASA North Media Art Centre starting September 24th. You've been listening to Making Waves, a monthly show about sound art produced by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wave Farm. Join us next month with more conversations and work from NASA's Soundplay Festival.